0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Tech Personal Finance. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we're going to cover employee stock options. Here are a few of the items we'll get into. What are employee stock options? What are the different types? And how are they taxed? I know your time is valuable, so we're going to get right into it. Think of employee stock options like a coupon to buy gas for your car at $2 per gallon. If gas prices jump up to say $4 a gallon, your $2 coupon would come in handy and be valuable. If gas prices sank down to say $1 a gallon, the coupon becomes temporarily worthless. The coupon could expire in the future and end up in the trash unless gas prices jump back up. An employee stock option, just like coupon, gives you the option or the choice to purchase stock in the future at a fixed price, you're never required to exercise shares, just like you're never required to use a coupon. And just the fact that you have the option or the coupon does not mean much as you actually have to act to realize the value with an option. You need to exercise it or a coupon, you need to bring it to the store, right? Leaving it at home while you go to the store or the gas station doesn't do you any good. Stock options are one of the most common ways to compensate employees of private companies. Growing companies usually have limited funding or limited revenue, and they generally can only pay so much in salaries. So stock options provide employees with bigger upside. They may make employees feel like they have skin in the game, which some believe is quite valuable from a company perspective. Just like coupons, sometimes stock options can be worthless. Sometimes they're worth something and other times they can be worth a lot. The two types of employee stock options are incentive stock options called ISOs or ISOs and non-qualified stock options, usually referred to as NSOs. Usually, most people know whether they have stock options, but it's not typical for them to know which type of options they have. One of the first differences between the two stock option grants is when they were granted. If we use an IPO or going public as a finish line of a metaphorical marathon, ISOs are usually given out at earlier stage companies. Let's say mile one through 10. If your company is in the middle stages, it's more likely they are receiving NSOs, which may be mile 11 through 18. And the closer your company gets to a potential IPO, the more likely they are to stop issuing options altogether. And they'll usually begin to offer RSUs or restricted stock units. A key advantage or difference with options versus RSUs is that options give you the ability to control the timing of income. With RSUs, the income hits on the vesting date and you don't have any control over that. If someone does not know what type of options they have, the stage of their company is usually a decent indicator. If they've been at the company for maybe five plus years pre-IPO, they could have multiple types of equity compensation. They could have ISOs, NSOs, and RSUs. The exact type is ultimately determined by reviewing a copy of the grant paperwork. And during discussions, we'll look at this timing and stage of company to get an idea of what they have, but we'll never base it off of that. We always want to see the paperwork. When looking at the names of the two type of options, it's easy to guess which one is taxed more favorably and which one is taxed less favorably. When you hear incentive stock options or non-qualified, without knowing anything, you probably guess the non-qualified one is taxed in a worse way. Usually you want to qualify for things or qualify for something. And in this case, you want to qualify for a special tax treatment. And so not qualified or non-qualified means you're not qualified for special tax treatment. So how are these options taxed? To explain the key differences in taxation, I'll use an example from a grocery store. Let's imagine you have a coupon for your favorite grocery store, and the coupon says, buy organic eggs for $5. Notice that the coupon does not specify the discount amount in dollar terms, like say, This coupon is good for $2 off eggs. It does not say that. It says a fixed price at which you can buy it. And it does not say a percentage. It does not show percentage terms, such as 10% or 15% off. Instead, it only states the price at which you can purchase the eggs. Given this, you wouldn't just maybe cash in the coupon. You'd be very curious to see what the actual price is. Again, this is a very key point in thinking about stock options. As employee stock options are a right to purchase a share of a company at a fixed or certain price. Again, it's not a specified discount. You might be familiar with ESPPs or the Employee Stock Purchase Plane, which usually has a fixed percentage discount, maybe 10, maybe 15%, where you can purchase your company stock at a discount. Again, these are about that. Options come at a fixed price. So, again, going back to the grocery store. You walk into the store, you check the price, and you see that those eggs are $8 per curtain. Perfect, this is great, it's a great coupon. You grab the eggs, you buy them for $5 using the coupon, which is almost a 40% discount off the regular price. But immediately after you purchase the eggs, right as you're about to walk out of the store, there's a tap on your shoulder, almost as if you were shoplifting, but it's not the security, it's Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam, otherwise known as the tax man, believes that that $3 discount that you just received should be treated the same exact way as if you earned $3 of income. They call this an, quote, economic benefit. So you received an economic benefit of $3. Now, thanks to Uncle Sam, you now owe taxes on that $3 of economic benefit or phantom income, or they call it income. This might amount to a tax bill of say a dollar or a dollar fifty, depending on your personal situation. But what if you don't happen to have a dollar on you or a dollar fifty on you in your pocket to pay taxes? You might need to borrow money from somebody, right? You might need to sell a few eggs to raise the money or come up with some other way to raise the cash. The above scenario seems a bit outlandish and it certainly doesn't seem fair. I mean, have there been any other times in your life? or you've been taxed on receiving a discount. No, I mean, we've all had friends that worked at certain stores or restaurants or companies that could give us a small discount and there's never any tax bill that comes with that. If you've ever purchased a car, you probably negotiated a price. And again, you're never taxed on any discount or price negotiation that you get. After all, in this egg example, the grocery store, we didn't earn $3 of income all we got were some discounted eggs. Again, this does not seem fair, so this would be the non-qualified stock option. Exercising options is just like cashing in a coupon at a store, and if you exercise a non-qualified stock option by purchasing the stock of your employer, the discount amount is considered taxable income in that year. It doesn't matter if you hold on to the stock for two days, if you sold it, or if you hold on to it for a couple of years, the discount at the purchase creates an economic benefit that is considered income. Another minor difference in the NSO taxation is that non-qualified stock option exercises are not only considered taxable income, but the spread to the discount is also subject to FICA taxes, which is for Social Security and Medicare. Medicare is typically 1.45%, but it could be a little bit higher for higher earners, and Social Security is usually 6.2% or always 6.2%, although that drops off completely once your income surpasses a certain point. And currently, at the time of this recording in 2023, that amount is around $160,000. So again, an NSO exercise, the discount you receive would be income tax and there'll be FICA taxes as well. Note if your company is not publicly traded, the price or the fair market value of your company stock is usually determined by a 409A valuation. If you're unsure of where to find this information, I would check with your finance or HR team. Now let's imagine the same grocery store example, except when you purchase the eggs for $5 and you walk out of the store, there's no shoulder tap, there's no Uncle Sam. Later that week, You go and you sell those eggs to your neighbor, your brother for say, $7. You actually make money in this scenario. That's a $2 profit. And now this is the point where you feel a tap on the shoulder and it's Uncle Sam. And it never feels good to pay taxes, never feels good to see Uncle Sam. But this situation is less upsetting since you actually received $2 of profit and actually have $7 cash in your pocket. So in this scenario, you are okay paying taxes. And that scenario is, again, it's more fair than the first. This is the better scenario, and this is the incentive stock option. So just a quick recap, when you're exercising options, if there is a discount, so if the value is higher than your cost to purchase the shares, for an NSO, that discount is considered income at the time of exercise and taxes are due. Just like if you've received a bonus, taxes are due. With an ISO, when you exercise, if there's a discount, there are no taxes due at the time of exercise. There is an additional layer of complexity with exercising ISOs and holding them through the calendar year through December 31st. And this is related to AMT or alternative Minimum tax. We'll cover this in more detail in a future episode, but I'll touch on that a little bit here. So each tax return has two calculations, one, the regular tax calculation that we're used to, and one alternative calculation called AMT. Your final tax number for the year is the larger these two calculations. The AMT calculation usually happens in the background, and you only hear about it when the calculation is larger. So most people are never subject to AMT. Most people never hear about it. How it works is some income items do not count as income for one calculation, they do for the other. Similar with tax deductions. Some deductions qualify as a deduction for one of those calculations, but not the other. When it comes to ISO exercises, the regular tax calculation with Uncle Sam does not count that discount we've talked about as income. But his evil brother, AMT, they do count it as income. So the question becomes, How many ISOs can I exercise before that AMT calculation becomes a factor? Or said differently, how much of a discount am I able to receive until I'm subject to AMT? The answer is different for everybody, but here's an example. Let's say we run the numbers and $10,000 of this discount AMT income is the number for you. And that is the amount of phantom ISO discount income that you can generate while not causing an additional tax bill. As an example, if your ISO discount or the coupon, as we've been describing it, is $10 off, you could exercise 1,000 shares, right? The math, 1,000 shares and a $10 discount per share at $10,000. You could exercise 1,000 shares to get right up to that AMT line. If you ended up going a little bit over the line, usually it's not a big deal. But you're now taxed on that discount. The AMT that you pay typically comes back to you in the future as a tax credit. If you pay a large amount of AMT, it could take a long, long time for this to come back to you as a credit. But in normal years, if you pay say a hundred dollars, something very small, hundred dollars in AMT, usually the next year you'd have a hundred dollar tax credit. And of course, if you did not go over the line and say, again, say that line was $10,000 and maybe you exercise enough shares to have $9,000 of discount used up, then there will be no taxes due, no AMT taxes. And it's important to remember that I'm talking about federal income taxes right now. Most states do not have their own AMT calculation, but some states do. California does. We've used the grocery store example. We've used the gas station example. So let's try an actual stock transaction as an example. Let's say Airbnb is valued at $50 per share, and you're given the option to buy Airbnb at $50 a share anytime in the next 10 years, and then the option expires. If the stock never goes above 50, you'll likely never want to exercise the option. I mean, why would you? Why would you buy it for $50 if you could buy it on the stock market for less than $50? Airbnb, in this case, is a publicly traded company, so you can go on to Schwab, E-Trade, Robinhood and buy the stock. So if it was below 50 in the market, you would not want to exercise the option to buy for $50. If the Airbnb stock price goes up and up and up, and it's now valued at say $100, it may make sense to exercise. I mean, why wouldn't we want to buy something worth $100 for only 50 bucks when we can turn around and sell it immediately for $100? It would be an instant $50 profit. And when you buy the stock for a discount, you are taxed again on the economic benefit or the discount, right? If it's a non-qualified stock option, you were taxed on that $3 discount on the eggs. And in this case, you would be taxed on the $50 discount on the Airbnb stock in a non-qualified world. For an ISO, again, you generally will not owe taxes until you sell it, ignoring any potential AMT implications. Note that if you exercise your ISOs in one year, and sell the shares for a gain within one year, so you hold the shares for less than one year, or you hold the shares for less than two years from the grant date, your tax treatment and your tax rates is similar to the tax treatment of an NSO or non-qualified option. These scenarios, the income is treated as ordinary income, and this transaction is called a disqualifying disposition. There's no preferential tax rates, though they would not be subject to the FICA or payroll taxes we described earlier. The big upside with ISOs is this. If you sell the shares of the gain after holding it for a year from the exercise and after two years from the grant date, the gain is taxed at a lower tax rate known as long-term capital gains rate. And this is the qualifying disposition that carries the special or preferential tax treatment. And this is when you qualify for, or can qualify for, with an ISO. Now, I want to highlight those requirements for a second. One year from the exercise and two years from the grant. Usually this is non issue as the one year holding period is very similar to the holding period for long-term capital gains with regular stocks. The two year requirement from the grade date usually is not an issue as well. As it's common that the grant has a one-year cliff where we're not even eligible to exercise any shares to begin with until one year has passed. Though the one-year cliff is common, there are situations that the cliff is shorter or non-existent. Most people understand the one-year holding period, but the two-year holding period, the grant date could potentially be overlooked. The key to a qualifying disposition is that all of the growth and all of the initial discount, is eligible to qualify for that lower capital gains rate. Going back to the egg example, right? The price was eight, but we were able to buy it for $5 with our coupon. So in that scenario, if those eggs suddenly jumped up to say $20, and you bought it, your cost was $5, your total gain is $15, right? again, you bought it for five, you sold it later to your neighbor for $20, the gain is $15. 12 of that is due to the actual appreciation since the initial price was eight. So it appreciated by 12. And $3 of your gain, was due just to the discount. So this all sounds great, right? Lower tax rates, you get the discount and the appreciation at lower tax rates. So how much of a tax rate do we get with this long-term capital gains rate or this preferred treatment? It really depends on your specific situation. But usually the range is between 10 and 15%, sometimes a bit less than that. So you might be thinking, this sounds great, right? Why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't we exercise and hold the ISOs for a big tax discount? Great question. And before we answer that question, this episode is brought to you by The Weekly Vest. It's a short, sweet email newsletter containing one chart, one quote, and one tweet. Not sure about you, but I received too many emails and too many long emails. That's why I started The Weekly Vest. It's short, sweet, and valuable. You can read it in 30 seconds or less. If you're interested, you can sign up at theweeklyvest.com and let me know what you think. Going back to the question, why wouldn't you exercise and hold the ISOs for that big tax discount? You've heard the saying, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Buying Airbnb for $50 when it's worth $100 sounds amazing. But if you want to wait 12 months to sell the shares, holding out for a lower tax rate, and the stock price drops while you're waiting, say it drops to $40 per share, and you end up losing money. And the person that ignored the tax discount, they sold it right away, they ignored the possibility of special tax rates, they locked in a guaranteed gain, they ended up well ahead of the person that was waiting for that tax treatment. Keep in mind that a 50% tax rate or even a 90% tax rate on some income is better than a 0% tax rate on new income. There's a saying in the investment world, and this was hammered into my mind coming from the tax world, is don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog. When you're making investment decisions, taxes are certainly a consideration and should be, but they're not the only consideration. Additional reasons to not hold out for a lower tax rate might be personal. They usually center around liquidity needs, concentration risk, or personal goals. If somebody needs the money for a particular reason, then the tax rate is less important. For many, life-changing money at a higher tax rate is still life-changing money. Would you take a guarantee of $5 million today? Or would you hold out with the hopes that that $5 million turns into, say, $6, $8, 10000000 in 12 months, knowing that it could go down to $1 million or zero? Other liquidity needs are more goal-specific, such as a house purchase, down payment, or tuition payment. Concentration risk is also a factor. If 90% of your net worth is tied up in one company, you may be more interested in reducing that exposure and reducing that percentage, de-risking, becoming more diversified. This doesn't mean selling everything, but it may mean selling some of it in order to sleep a little bit better at night. One final but important item to review is around leaving your company. NSOs expire based on the expiration date in the grant agreement. Usually that's 10 years from the grant date. Companies can and usually do restrict this if you're leaving the company. The most common expiration date is three months post-termination. However, companies have the ability to extend this, and there's a growing trend where more and more companies are doing this. The point of extending the PTE or post-termination exercise window is to reward employees and not force them into a very tight three-month timeline where they have to make a potentially large, expensive, life-changing financial decision. I mean, the employees have worked there maybe for many, many years. They might not have any shares. They might not have exercised anything. And now within three months, maybe they just lost their job. They have to make this big decision, maybe come up with a lot of money to do it. So it's not too employee-friendly. And so more and more companies are extending that period. ISOs, on the other hand, have a tight 90-day timeline and is not company-specific as it actually comes from the tax code or internal revenue code. The companies can't extend the 90-day PTE window with ISOs, but they do have the ability to convert those ISOs over to NSOs which would or could give them the longer exercise window. Keep in mind that these post-termination exercise windows could be something you can negotiate into job offers or on your way out of a company, especially if you're a key player. As always, I hope you found this episode helpful. If you have any questions, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. You can find any links or resources for this episode at techpersonalfinancepod.com. The easiest place to find me is at MikeTroxel.com. That's spelled T-R-O-X-E-L-L. There I have links to everything I'm working on.